and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. History will never be able to contain all of America. A great country, an evil country, a place of tremendous generosity and welcome, as well as a place of pronounced disdain for foreigners and outsiders. America is not one thing or another. America is queer. Those are the words of my guest, an American academic and professor at Harvard, an award-winning LGBT activist and organizer, and the author of the influential A Queer History of the United States. He is with me today to help me answer one simple question. Is America ready for its first queer president? I am thrilled to welcome to the bunker Professor Michael Bronsky. Thank you for having me. Michael, many listeners, I think, will find this a fanciful proposition. But a significant school of thought pre-2008 asserted with equal confidence that there was no way America would ever elect a black president. So I think it is useful to tease out where this might be similar and where it might be different. What did you think before 2008? Were you surprised at Obama's emphatic victory? I was. I think many of us were here. It was certainly I mean, I was born in 1949, right? So African-Americans being elected to almost any office was highly unusual. Any higher office, it was simply inconceivable. The rise of Obama pretty much out of nowhere as a senator who then skyrocketed to a campaign that skyrocketed to winning was a complete shock, I think. How big an issue was Obama's race in that first election? And is that a useful proxy for sort of trying to understand how big an issue sexuality might be in the case of an LGBT plus candidate? I think it is an interesting proxy. I'm not sure it's an accurate one for the main reason that by the time Obama was running for office, well, had already become senator, which is actually quite an accomplishment, and then he was running for presidency, right? I don't want to ever deny that there's a severe and horrendous racism all throughout American culture. (laughs) But by the time Obama's on the rise, right, and really since the 60s, the later 60s, right, uh, racism exists, but it's less and less acceptable to say it. So that, in fact, the racism that Obama faced was racism that was, to a larger degree, unarticulated, because it's just not proper, right? Mm Mm-mm. So I think when you're using race as a proxy, you need to actually factor in the fact that there is racism, but also the fact that people are not allowed to articulate, for the most part, people are not allowed to articulate that out loud. You mentioned stuff that is going on at the moment. When Pete Buttigieg, the openly gay then mayor of South Bend, Indiana, now Transport Secretary, when he took the 2020 primaries by storm, there were polls predicting that he could narrowly beat Trump. But the last four years, especially to me as an outsider looking in, they feel like a significant regression in US politics. The the capital insurrection, the weaponization of trans rights, the unwinding of Roe v. Wade. It just feels like LGBT plus people are an election topic rather than a demographic with agency. Are we in some ways further away from a queer president than we were four years ago, I guess is what I'm asking. I think we are, and I think it's a very complex, well, I think there are complicated ways to look at this, right? I think that it is, in fact, 
increasingly over the past two decades less acceptable to actually be vocally anti-gay or to be vocally homophobic. Hmm. Right. This has shifted a bit with certain legislation over the past, particularly in the South and in the Midwest, right? But what has happened, I believe, is that the fear of the homosexual, right? That lurking fear of the of the outsider, the the fear of the non-conforming sexual person, right? All of them cultural and social anxiety has really been put on to transgender people. And the reality is I right, we now have twelve people in Congress who are openly lesbian or gay or bisexual. Two yeah. of them, Tammy Baldwin and Kirsten Sinema, are actually in the Senate. We actually had 13, but George Santos was asked to leave. But it is perfectly acceptable. You know, At this point, there are over 200 laws in various states that impede transgender life, whether it's be denying medical care, just transgender use, to denying uh, access to bathrooms of people's chosen gender, laws that actually prohibit uh, mentioning transgender in the classroom, laws that prohibit people actually, in the case of drag shows, right, being in drag in public. So, in fact, this sort of fear of that dangerous homosexual has been, I wouldn't say replaced by, because I think people still fear the homosexual, to use that old-fashioned word, right? But, in fact, what's okay now is to actually attack transgender people as a proxy, Michael, if we find ourselves in an era of culture wars, might it be smart for for progressives to actually lean into that? After all, we know that many voters now seem to vote on the basis of what will make the other side unhappiest. So is there actually a strategic reason for saying, let's just go for it? If we're going to discover the character of a nation. Let's just go for it. Let's find out. Yes, I agree completely. And and I agree partially on, I would argue, historical evidence. Well, first of all, the first rule of life should be that you always stand up to a bully. You never back down. And culture wars, and particularly culture wars coming from the right attacking Black people, queer people, trans people, are really forms of, of overt bullying. Right. And I think historically what we've seen, right, is that when we did back down in the late 70s, when we had campaigns of Anita Bryant of Save Our Children, uh, the campaigns from the the so-called moral majority to take lesbian and gay teachers out of classrooms, we lost those wars and we lost them pretty quickly because we we actually backed down and we and we actually pretended that we could ameliorate their fears. And of course, these fears are actually imagined very real for the people, but right, not based on fact. So if you lean into it, if you actually confront them, you may lose, but in fact, you have a far better chance of winning than if you back down. Right. And the reason I ask that is that to me as a gay activist, when they go low, we go high, occasionally feels a little bit like we are running away from important fights. When drag queens are sort of being banned from story time and books are being prescribed from libraries, is it smarter to talk about inflation or green policies in response? I'm not sure. It's important to talk about all of the issues, but it's it's very important not to let some issues replace or displace the issues that m- really make people uncomfortable. Mm. I mean, I think the other thread here that is going on, and it's going on for, you know, since 1950, right, is that 
many more Americans, well, many more people have actually gradually been coming out over the years, over the past 70 years. It is far more likely that every American is related to or knows or works with or has a neighbor who's openly lesbian, gay, or bisexual. It is much more likely that people's children, grandchildren, nieces and nephews are openly queer in some way. And it's even more likely over the next five years, I believe, that somebody will have somebody who is transgender as well. Mm. Since more and more, particularly, young, particularly younger people are coming out as trans. So it's it's much harder, right, to actually publicly take an anti-queer, anti-trans stand if you know somebody who is in one of those categories. Yes, that's true. It makes it personal. It, it makes it personal. Now... If you're in the voting booth, you can vote for whomever you like and nobody will know. Knowing somebody who's LGBTQ, um, loving them, supporting them may not immediately translate into a voting block, but it does put a dent in that voting block. I mean, there's a poll that came out three years ago from the Williams Institute from UCLA about gay people and voting. There were 9 million LGBT adults who were registered and eligible to vote. 21% of self-declared LGBT people are not even registered to vote. Of those 9 million, 50% were Democrats, but 15% were actually Republicans who have, for the most part, voted against LGBTQ rights. Even more weirdly, 22% are independents and 13% do not know what party they identify with. So 35% of, the, of those 9 million people actually are not Democrats, and we don't know how they might vote. Quite extraordinary, because, you know, in a binary situation where you're you're choosing just the least worst option, I would have thought this one is a bit of a no-brainer. Talk to me about the advent of homocons. They really do my head in, Michael. How can there be a single gay for Trump, let alone gays for Trump? Multiple. And they're actually rather multiplying here in this country. I don't know what it's like in the UK, but we have more and more of them popping up. You would think it would be a basic political dictum, right, that you don't vote against your interests. <laughs> that has to be modified depending on what you think your interests are. So if your interests are actually supporting large-scale climate denial, uh, capitalism, big business, big big pharma, you know, being being queer is the least of it. And I suspect that, that the people we see who are homocons, and if people don't know, homocon means homosexual conservatives. It doesn't surprise me because a political dictum that I, that I sort of, or a political principle I mentioned in my class sometimes, is that the larger any movement gets, and this is true, I think, of any movement, the larger any movement gets, the more conservative it has to become to accommodate larger numbers numbers of people, right? So in the it becomes a broader church, basically. a broader church, right? So if you look at Gay Liberation Front, which I was part of here, right, in 1969, uh, pretty much crazy anarchist radical, right? And by 75, it the movement had expanded not to gay Republicans, but to really conservative gay Democrats. <laughs> yeah. So now it's large enough, right? That, and I have to say that homocons or people that we call homocons are really are really a fringe of that. I mean, as I said, that there are more and more, but they they really are not representative. What's the psychology here? What is the hope? Because 
there are large rumps of the right of the Republican Party that would effectively love to just force gay people back in the closet, if not erase us altogether. Yes. And so, so what is the hope of those demographics? Are they are they hoping that the f- the fact they're white and rich will somehow trump the fact that they're they sleep with men? I mean, I it's the bit I don't understand. Do they think that by siding with the authoritarian right, they will somehow be saved? I think you're giving them too much credit that they've actually thought it through. (laughs) I think that it's an impulse. I think that they're basically conservative people who have in their imaginations, right, in, in their sort of imaginary of what America can be, have carved out a small place for themselves and that they will be safe, even though, right, that they hardly ever get invited to speak. They're hardly ever asked to to really um, support anybody or to give an endorsement. Through this whole thing, Michael, I've been saying LGBT plus or queer. But we are really just talking about Pete Buttigieg, right? Or or are there other prominent people gaining massively in profile that I'm not aware of? Pete Buttigieg, commonly called a few years ago Mayor Pete because he was mayor of South Bend, has been the only person I know of out LGBTQ person to run for president. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly he was middle-of-the-road Democrat, and certainly he was not in any way a radical. I mean, he was certainly a centrist Democrat. He's in the Biden mold, interestingly, isn't he? Very, very much so, right? Although I would say that actually, you know, bringing his husband or bringing his children to events culturally makes him a radical. I read somewhere that Buttigieg was the second most requested surrogate by Democrats fighting midterm elections in 2022, second only to Biden, and way ahead of Harris, for instance, or other much more prominent cabinet members. What do you think is the attraction with Buttigieg? Is it that he confounds homophobes with his military records and his religious belief and his straight-lacedness, I guess? Yes. I think that's part of it, right? I think it's also that he's a really sort of attractive, youngish white guy. I think you cannot underestimate, particularly in America, right, that being white and even being white and queer can go very far if you're the, if you're the right sort of queer. And he's spoken about you know his, his his struggles when he was at Harvard of not coming out because he because he wanted to join the armed forces that he didn't want to hurt his political career. I think people from a queer point of view, right. Because I was actually, I knew many people at Harvard when he was there, right? Many queer gay students. And they would say, you know, it wasn't that hard to come out, Pete. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) You know, like tons of queer people all over the place in groups and support and money from the dean. But I think think to the straight world, right, that then struggle, right, that then struggle to come to grips with your identity and come to grips with suppressing it, right? in order to join the army, in order to fit in, in order to be a public servant, is a big plus. Whereas queer people see it as like, oh my God, he really lost out on 15 years of having sex. (laughs) Yeah. 
Can that be a problem for the LGBT movement, actually, Michael? You wrote a piece once about Max Davidson titled, He Played the Jew Perhaps a Little Too Well. Is Mayor Peter slightly too idealized Disney version of a queer person to advance the rights of anyone other than his own, actually? Well, I think that's an excellent question, and my immediate answer is yes. You're completely correct in that analysis. And I would say that I don't know that he's not the best person to help advance some sort of LGBT rights, because if you're more out, if you actually did admit to not being monogamous, I'm sure that Buttigieg would not have gotten as far as he has if he and Chase and his partner were part of a throuple. It is an interesting one to ponder, right? Because, you know, for instance, over here, we have our first prime minister of color. And although he is a conservative one and a fairly useless one, the fact is that glass ceiling has been broken. And so it feels like the politics of the person are incidental. The fact that that particular hoodoo has been smashed is more important in the long run. And, and I'm not sure about it. I sort of vacillate between the two views. I think that is in many ways completely true, that once the glass ceiling is shattered, it's shattered. But I think what we also have to take into consideration is, and I'm thinking about Obama here, is Obama literally super smashed that glass ceiling in a shocking way. And I would argue that American politics now, right, that there's been a decade-long backlash against Obama getting elected and that Donald Trump's birtherism, which he's using, which he used against Obama, which he's used against Kamala Harris, which he's using now against Nikki Haley. I absolutely know what you're saying, and I'm glad you said it. It does feel like Trump is the Republicans' punishment for the Democrats having dared to elect right. a black president, right? That's what you're trying to say. Yes, and this this profound belief that Trump should be reelected by by a large, not only the MAGA, right, but by a, a large part of the Republican Party who have not broken away from him, right, I think is, is, is a testament to the lingering racism and backlash against Obama. Mm. Right. So I think that while Pete Buttigieg or somebody else may break glass ceilings, there also may be backlash that comes with that as well. So if we look at American popular culture, right, we're at a point in which RuPaul's Drag Race is one of the most popular TV shows. We had Drag Queen Story Hours. We had multiple movies about trans people, non-binary people. So the American culture can actually accept this as part of popular culture. And at the same time, the back simultaneously, there's a political backlash against well, it. Right. So what I go back to thinking about is the America in the 1950s, in which African-American music, whether it be rhythm and blues, whether it be jazz, particularly a Black-inspired rock and roll is sweeping the country. And we have the height of Jim Crow laws, where you will not even let Black students go to a white school, right? At the same time, people are listening to Black music on their radio. So progress doesn't always happen simultaneously in popular culture and in political culture. In fact, I'd argue often they're diametrically opposed because of this backlash paradigm. 
Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And, and going back to your earlier analogy, maybe that is the price of standing up to the bully, that, you know, it often gets worse before it gets better. I was going to say, standing up, I think you need to stand up to the bully. It doesn't mean the bully is not going to really obliterate you on the schoolyard pavement. Yeah, yeah. But you have to stand up to the bully. Finally, finally, let me give you a real imponderable to ponder. Is being a black man or a gay man ultimately less of an impediment than being a woman when you're running for the presidency? It does feel somehow weirdly like that is an even more resilient glass ceiling in US politics. I would agree to that. And I think the primary lesson here is Hillary Clinton. <laughs> mm. Right. I think that if, if you go back to a vulgar Marxist sort of notion of finding the first contradiction, which you would argue is actually capitalism, I think that gender is a more primary and, and more difficult contradiction for people to wrap their heads around, which in to some degree is why, is why the attacks on transgender people are so deeply felt and so deeply ingrained, right? Because they really are transgressing a notion of gender that everybody's brought up with. Yeah. So that I think that a woman, you know, you know I mean, I, I know if we just look at the, the results from the uh, primary in Nevada, right, Nikki Haley came in after none of the above candidates. <laughs> wow. Right. And that was partially because the, cult, the Trump was not on the ballot and the Trump people voted for none of these candidates. But still, I think symbolically, right, that in fact, and I don't want to by any means imply that I support Nikki Haley, who's has appalling politics and who's done nothing but harm in her career. But I do believe that she never stood a chance. I mean, instinctively, that makes a, a strange amount of sense. It just feels like in the current climate, if the, you know, if the world was coming to an end because we had been hit by an asteroid and people had to choose, you know, between sort of 11 eminently qualified women and one man, whatever man, yes. they would choose the man and just very a very, very odd feature of current politics. And I, th I think that's totally true. And we could look at it psychoanalytically that it's really about rejection of the mother or whatever. But I think it's just an ingrained misogyny that in the cultures we live in, trumps, so to speak. Homophobia. Homophobia and racism. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes, not only does it make sense, I think it's absolutely right. Professor Michael Bronski, thank you for a superbly enlightening chat. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. These conversations that I know you love, because you tell me with humbling frequency, cost money to make, so please consider supporting us from as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of who else? Pete Buttigieg. I hope that when my children are old enough to understand politics, they will be puzzled that someone like me revealing he's gay was ever considered to be newsworthy. The true compass that will have guided us there will be the basic regard and concern that we have for one another as fellow human beings, based not on categories of politics, orientation, background, status or creed, but on our shared knowledge that the greatest thing any of us has to offer is love. This is Alexandreo in the bunker saying over and out. 
The Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Eliza Davis-Beard, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>